Regina, thanks for joining us today. Whoever thought making a baby could be so hard? Luckily, the fertility journey isn't meant to be traveled alone. Eloise Drain has helped hundreds of people build and grow their families over the last 15 years, and she's ready to share her insider knowledge and expertise with you. So grab a seat and let's talk fertility and alternative family building in the Fertility Cafe. Regina Townsend is the founder of The Broken Brown Egg. Regina and her husband spent nearly a decade on their own fertility journey. They had to overcome issues with hypothyroidism, PCOS, blocked fallopian tubes, type 2 diabetes, and some male factor issues as well. In 2015, they were blessed with the opportunity to try IVF and had their son Judah in 2016. The Broken Brown Egg is an infertility advocacy blog and source of connection for individuals seeking a personal story of infertility written from the African-American viewpoint. It was founded in 2009. Hey everyone, so excited today that we have Regina joining us. Regina, thanks for joining us today. Of course, of course. Ooh, girl, so we have a lot to talk about. (laughs) We have a lot to talk about. So, you know, and right before I hit the record button, of course, we were already talking. And let's just get started. I mean, let's just jump right in and start talking about Black women and Brown women and infertility issues and all of the things. I think this is going to be a very heavy conversation. Some people might actually feel uncomfortable about the conversation, but that's the point. You have to get uncomfortable sometimes. Yes. You don't change. When you're, when you're comfortable, you won't change. Exactly. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So let's start by you telling a little bit about yourself and then why you started the Broken Brown Egg. And then we're going to jump into a lot of things. So feel free. Okay. Well, I am Regina Townsend. I am the founder of the Broken Brown Egg. Um, I started the Broken Brown Egg in 2009. I had been a part of an online community called Chocolate Brides because I, um, when I was getting married in 2005, we were struggling to find black representation in the bridal industry too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look at the irony. Um, and I have been a part of this online community uh, for a couple of years. And because there was such a need, we're always looking for community. So many of us are the only. Um, and so there was, so many of us that stuck around after the wedding, after the honeymoon, after whatever. And a few of those ladies were talking about how they were either pursuing IVF or just having difficulty with infertility or secondary infertility. I had never heard of that before either. And um, I remember feeling like, oh, that, that is really difficult. I've never heard about this for Black women. I hope everything works out for them. And a couple of years later, that's where me and my husband found ourselves. And I realized, oh, snap, this is not just an anomaly. This is something that Black women actually are dealing with. Um, And I wanted to do something because I felt hostage to my feelings. And I just wanted to kind of get those emotions out. And so I just started writing about it. I started posting on Facebook. I started just being more vocal and I started getting messages from people that were like, thank you for saying this. Thank you for shedding light on this. Or, oh, I thought I was the only one or 
Um, and that just gave me the fuel to just keep writing it. So over the, the past, I guess it's about 11 years now, um, I've taught myself web design. I've taught myself blogging. I've taught myself <laughs> all kinds of things because the mission of bringing a voice um, and a face even to this was so important. So over those years, I've dealt with um, PCOS. We've dealt with, my husband has diabetes. We've dealt with male factor infertility. We've had a kinship adoption that fell through. We've done IVF. And now we have um, our son, Judah, who is now four years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the midst of all of that, this intersectionality of motherhood, womanhood, what it means to be a black woman, what it means to be a black wife, what it means to be a parent in a world where black boys are not safe, all of those things. But unfortunately, it's not even black boys anymore. It's black boys. It's black girls. It's if you have color, that's it. Yes. You're not safe. You're inherently shown images and things that tell you that you're not welcome. You're not safe. You're disposable. Um, And the the impacts that that has had on my mental health, on everything else that I do has just really made it that much more important to me that I keep going with the broken brown egg, even beyond the scope of just infertility, because all of these things connect. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They all connect. Mm-hmm. You have they, to keep talking about them. Yes, absolutely. And and I feel like, especially when it comes to the in the fertility world, and when it comes to Black and Brown women, first of all, I mean, let's just start from the beginning, or we, I don't even know where the beginning is, but let's just start from way way back. I recently read an article um, called "How the Myth of Black Hyperfertility Harms Us," and mm-hmm. this article um, was talking about how there's this um, hyper of like a black hyperfertility reproduction rate of black people and how supposedly black people have the highest um, ability to be able to have all these babies. And so there's this myth, mis, uh, mystical um, <laughs> rate of all these black women having babies and we, we have children all the time and um, it's easy for us to get pregnant. And, and as a matter of fact, the thing about this article um, that there was a a special edition in the American Birth Control League's journal Birth Control Review called A Negro Number. And yes, and about um, this league that was founded by this woman who encouraged women to make conscious choices over their fertility, but it was also tied to racist and classist ideas about who should reproduce. And Mm. many of the members were active supporters of the eugenics movement. So of course, you know, they were talking about how black women, you know, were were hyper pregnant or hyper fertility and all this other stuff and that we should tame it down and we should, you know, and we should um, resort to using birth control because 
you know, we have way too many children and we have way too many pregnancies and, and so on and so forth. And yeah, this was back in 1932. Yeah, go ahead. We actually, yeah, we don't need any help getting pregnant. Uh-huh. We need help controlling ourselves uh-huh. and helping uh-huh. ourselves because we don't, and it, it builds into this, this, the myth comes from this, this psyche that we're not human. You know, it comes mm-hmm. from that, that concept that they're, they're not, they're, they breed. It's not, they have children, they breed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that mentality is there. Um, and so when you look at someone or a class of people as almost animalistic and the fact that they, they're, they breed and they don't have the good sense to control themselves and they're not able to take care of themselves. And so we need to police them and we need to control them. When you look at it that way, you're not looking at the same thing as a woman being pregnant. You're not looking at it the same way. And so it's easy for you to ignore the mortality rates. It's easy for you to ignore fibroids. It's easy for you to ignore the things that are disproportionately affecting them health-wise because you're not looking at it the same way you would look at someone that you consider a human. Mm-hmm. It's real deep and real. Um, I was actually reading an article yesterday that was talking about whiteness as the norm, and um, they were discussing how one of the one of the writers of the article was discussing how when they were a child, when they were in I guess middle school or high school, they had their first sexual education class, and they remembered how they thought they were going to be exposed to all of this scandalous imagery and information. And when they got to the class and they were discussing, and this was a white person writing about it, they got to the class and they showed only images of the inside of the body. They, they showed what the fallopian tubes looked like. They showed what the ovaries looked like, but they didn't show any actual genitalia. And she, she says, or the writer says, that's not what was alarming. What was alarming is that after their sexual education class and they had their social studies class, the pictures and imagery of Africa, when they were showing the people that live in Africa, they showed the naked women, they showed the naked men. And she, the author realized that they felt comfortable showing the human body of those people because they weren't considered human. They was like, well, this is we're just showing you animals, you know, we're showing you, you know, people in the wild who don't have you know, the good sense. But when we're talking about humans and we're talking about real people, we need to protect you from that imagery Mm -hmm. because we want to protect the modesty. Mm -hmm. And when you look at it that way, it's like you, you don't even realize how deep in the matrix you are until you read things like that. And you're like, Whoa, Mm -hmm. this is deeper than I Mm -hmm. thought it was. This is deep, deep. (laughs) You know, and it really is a yeah, and it really is a shame that we we're, we are still talking about the same things that we were talking about back in the days when I was young or when you were younger, um, it, or, well, I think I'm probably much older than you, but when in the, you know, in the 60s and the 70s when, you know, it was about the equality or whatever and we with and 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 martin luther king was up there giving him his freedom giving the freedom speech and everything else and we thought okay it's going to change who would have ever thought that in 2020 
we're back to those days. You know, it may not look exactly the same. Oh, but we're back there. And quite honestly, if you really sit and think about it, did we ever really change? I mean, I know we've changed in some instances for sure. Um, You know, I wouldn't be where I'm at right now running an agency and even doing this podcast if we didn't change. Clearly we did. But there's so many underlying issues that have not changed at all. And I, I think that's probably because the real root of some of the things never really got or get the attention or the discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, because those are the really nitty gritty, dirty, um, heavy things. Um, because it was and- put, Band-Aid was put on it. It wasn't fixed. Mm-hmm. It wasn't corrected. It wasn't resolved. It was just a bandaid. Yeah, and that's with a lot. Of, that's with a lot of things. Um, and it's it's because it is difficult. The work is difficult. The work is very difficult, and it's exhausting, even mm-hmm. for those of us who are in it, because you're constantly trying to eke out a quote unquote regular life. You're trying to just live and enjoy and, you know, the pursuit of happiness and all of that. But these things interject because they're still there. So even when you're trying to, you know, make simple decisions, this subject of race comes into it, whether you want it to or not. Mm -hmm. When we talk about infertility and things like that, and people have asked me, um, you know, why focus on black women because infertility affects us all and we're all you know devastated the same way and i'm i understand where they're coming from because infertility is difficult no matter who you are no matter where it affects you correct however race affects my experience of infertility because my socioeconomic status may be different mm-hmm. my health may be different the studies that are done may not have included any black women or black men so that the rates may be different for me and I would never know it. Mm -hmm. The things that affect me that cause infertility may be completely different. The environmental factors that affect my people that make it difficult for me to conceive have not received the attention that they should. Like there's been so many articles that are talking just about our hair care, the products that we use, the, the lotions that we use, things that we use that we don't even know are disrupting us and we are disproportionately affected by fibroids. Like there's so many things that my race does bring into account and I am not attempting to say that infertility is not difficult for all of us. It's just that there are additional things that I need to feel representation about so that I don't continue to feel so alone. Um, And and I think that's hard for people because they feel like, well, it's hurting me too. mm -hmm. This is difficult for me too. Why do you have to, you know, separate it out? And I I think it's deeper than that. Mm -hmm. Oh, (laughs) way, way, way deeper, way deeper. You know, when I first started, um, being an egg donor back in 2000, I used to walk into the fertility clinics and sometimes I would literally be the only person of color in the, in the building, um, which was kind of uncomfortable, you know? And then 
Um, and then I would go back to the fertility clinics and okay, yeah, you would start seeing people of color um, there, but you never saw black or brown babies on a, on a pamphlet or on the walls or, you know, you never saw anybody that kind of resembled you on any of the marketing materials or anything that they used to have. And it's just like, okay, so you want to say that you're helping people and you help anybody and you don't discriminate, but why is it that all of your marketing material is only geared towards one specific group? And, and, it's, and sometimes I think it's not even done malicious or, or no, with thought. Intentionally. Like, no, it does, it's not. It's not. It's I really don't think that it is at all. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was telling you that I have had multiple people who have reached out to me who find my site or find my social media um, and they want to connect and they reach out and a lot of times the first lines in their message are, I'm not a black woman, but, or they say things like, I don't know if, if I'm allowed to, to contact you or just these things where they're kind of like apologizing for stepping into what they see as a sacred space. Like mm -hmm. clearly because you talk about black women and infertility as a woman who is not black, I don't know if I'm welcome here. Mm -hmm. And I usually will respond and let them know, no, that's fine. I'm, that's not what it is about. It's about representation. But if anyone needs to connect, I'm open. I'm willing. I'm, this, this affects us all. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it and I realized this is a teaching moment because what this illustrates to someone who is not a black woman or not a, a, a person of color, this is how we feel. Mm -hmm. just navigating the world. Mm -hmm. Every single space that we enter, we're wondering, am I, am I allowed here? Mm -hmm. Am I safe here? Mm -hmm. Am I hated here? Am I welcome here? And so when we're looking at the clinic imagery or when we're looking at, and it, and it goes both ways. When you are projecting um, or promoting or marketing an adoption agency and all you're showing are black children. Mm -hmm. That is something also because you're telling, you're subliminally saying mm -hmm. that this is something that we're using a lot because we're always having babies and we're not able right. to take care. Yes. All of that messaging is in there, whether you know it or not. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be intentional. This is how we navigate the world. There's been plenty of times that I've gone on road trips or um, anything, and I will go. When I need to stop for gas, I will look. Does this look like I'm welcome here? Hello. Is there other people here? <laughs> because I want to know that I'm safe. Yes. And it sounds like this big jump between physical safety and emotional safety, but it's not. If I'm looking at how you market your clinic and all I see are people who don't look like me, I don't know if my concerns will be safe here. I don't know if my plans are safe here. I don't know if my voice is welcome here. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I'll be treated. Mm -hmm. And that affects all of these quote unquote simple decisions mm -hmm. where I can look at your, your rates and say, this is the greatest clinic. This is the best place to go. But if I don't see myself represented, I don't know that it'll be the same success rate for me. Exactly. I don't know that it'll be effective for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
we have to impress upon um, those who are in the pharmaceutical industry, those who are, you know, running clinics and organizations, that that has to be a part of their intention. Mm -hmm. You have to actually show that people are welcome. And you may think that you don't need to, but you do, because we're taught from a very young age, subliminally, that we need to be looking for representation because it's an indication of our safety. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I don't think that many people who are not black or who have not had to experience that think about. Mm-hmm. We're, when, from the time we're little, we're looking to see, is there anybody that looks like me? Because if there's nobody that looks like me, I'm not, I might not be safe here. Right. And that you're not is, safe. You're not welcomed. Yeah. And, um, and do you need to fear that if you put yourself into that situation and something happens, then are you going to have to blame yourself because you're the one who put yourself in that situation? You knew fully well that you shouldn't have had no business going over yeah. there. But you did anyway, thinking, well, I mean, you know, it's it's 2020. Why would I need to be afraid? But that's the problem. I think that people really don't understand. I have three black boys, uh, a 26-year-old, a 25-year-old, and a 14-year-old. All of them have had that conversation of you are a black male in this country. You cannot do what other people that you see that your friends are that have different color skin, you can't do the same thing that they can do. You can't act the same way that they can act. You have to be more vigilant. You have to be more careful. I mean, we had conversations with our children since they were young, and it really is a shame that now I'm not only having the conversation with my black boys, now I'm having conversation with my black daughters. I've had, Judah Judah is four, and in his, um, we had a parent-teacher conference at his preschool last year, and his teacher, who was, a, who was a black woman, was talking to us about his behavior because at that time he was three and three teenagers are real. They are out here. They do not care about anything. Mm. And in this conversation where we were talking about his behavior and some things that we could do, she said in that parent-teacher conference about a three-year-old, I want to work with you all on his behavior because as a young black boy, he can't be in classroom acting like that. Mm. He's three. And the fact that when she said it, we nodded in agreement is a big deal. Mm-hmm. It means that we already inherently know that at his toddler side, he's already going to be looked at as more aggressive, mm-hmm. more hostile, mm-hmm. more dangerous, mm-hmm. less innocent. Mm-hmm. than any other toddler mm-hmm. who is the same size, same age, same height, just by the fact that he's a black boy. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, outside of the infertility world, I'm a young adult librarian, so I work with teenagers, and I work in a suburb where I have teens of color, I have white teens, I have all kinds of teens. And I've seen that I've had to teach, over the years that I've worked in this position, I've had to teach community members, coworkers, the general public, that the behavior that you're saying is unacceptable from this 12-year-old black boy, you were just ignoring from that eight-year-old white boy. Mm. And they don't realize it until someone 
highlights it. Mm -hmm. They don't think of it that way because it's just natural. There's actually a study uh, by the American Psychological Association that says that people see black boys as up to four and a half years older than they are. Mm. Just Mm. off sight, you see them as older than they are and that they are less innocent, that they're more dangerous, that they have more negativity at the same age Mm -hmm. that you would ignore the same behavior from someone who was not black. Mm -hmm. And that is what's crazy to me, that the same way you've had to have this conversation with your adolescent male, I've already had to be in these conversations Mm -hmm. about my toddler. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's Mm -hmm. not even five. Mm -hmm. He's a toddler. And it really is a shame. Yeah. And it really is a shame because, you know, I know obviously this, this podcast is about infertility or in, in reproduction, but the thing about it is, is this, all of what we're talking about, this is an all inclusive thing. It's not, we can't just separate it and say like, well, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, fertility is here. And then, you know, you being black is here and it's all together. It's all lumped into one pot. And, and it makes every decision so much heavier. Yes. Every decision is so much heavier. Yes, because absolutely. Because at that point, when you're thinking about these things and having these conversations, and in a position like my husband and I, where we have embryos left over, we're, our simple decision about, well, now he's four, let's make it. It's not a simple decision because the country mm. is in a racial reasoning. Mm. So now we're trying to decide do you bring another young black person into a world that's currently dealing with, and it's not to say that it wasn't dealing with it in 2016 when he was born, you know, but these decisions are not simple because I have to include race in all of them. Mm. And, and people will tell you, no, you don't. It's this, that, and the other. The world has been the world. The world has been the world, but there's a responsibility that I'm thinking about all the time as a black woman. And so when I'm considering my fertility, I'm thinking about all of that all the time. And that's exhausting. It's exhausting. Well, and I think, too, that the other concern is... So I completely, I, I don't, I no longer watch TV. I really, I really don't watch TV. Um, yeah. I'm very seldom on social media. Um, I mean, I have social media platforms, but it really isn't me behind the scene. It's my team behind the scenes. And I specifically stopped watching um, a lot of shows that only would portray Black people in the light of drug dealers thugs, uh, murderers, um, you know, they only want to show, and that's all you kept seeing. It's black people who are the, the drug dealers. It was black people who were running around killing people. It was the black people that was, and it's just like, really? No wonder why society has a view of what they have is because that is what they're trying to portray. So you're only going to see that. You're not going to see, you know, the um, the the Huxtables of the world, right? <laughs> going back to, I couldn't even remember the 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 name of the show, the Cosby Show. But you mm-hmm. you you only remembered the Huxtables, and then you don't even want to remember that because now look what happened yeah. to you know Bill Cosby and where he is currently right now, right? So and it's just like, okay, I just could not. 
stomach it any longer of it's 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 what society is feeding everybody and what society is feeding everybody is um black people are lazy black people are um only drug dealers or black people are only this or black people are only that and it's just like no there's actually way more of us that are doing you know well for ourselves and well for our family and our, and we're educated and the problem is is that nobody wants to give a lot of the people that have that education and have the um the the right frame of mind, the right understanding, the all of it. They just don't want to give anybody that opportunity. There's a difference. And I think it's difficult because there's 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 no balance. Like I try to be very intentional about my social media intake, my general media intake. Um, and I also make it a point as a librarian considering what the library is for a community. I try to make sure that what I have on the shelf is representative of more than one side of the mm -hmm. black experience. Mm -hmm. And that is, that's another conversation that I'm in all the time that I'm in currently <laughs> at the library right now. There's, there are, there are books that are called street lit urban fiction. And that is a specific genre that does it talks about street life. It talks about um, drug dealing or just just living in the hard, urban, gritty. That's just, that is a genre. The problem is there are some libraries that that genre, those stickers on those books that say urban fiction, they just put it on any book that's black. Hmm. Any book with a black author, any book that has a black character, any book that's you know, and so the idea is that we're all the same. We're one note. And that's the problem. We're not all one note. While there are those who live that life and enjoy that life, that's not everybody's story. Mm -hmm. And I shouldn't have to go completely to the other side of the spectrum because when I was younger, I loved, I loved like Omar Tyree and all those kind of books. I loved those. But I also were like, but that's not my life, you know? Mm -hmm. And to get something that was more reflective of me, I had to go to Sweet Valley Twins or something that didn't show me at all. And so I feel like that's part of the issue in all of these ranges, including the fertility conversation, is I don't necessarily want my story to be representative of everybody, mm -hmm. but I want to open the door for us to have more representation of the fact that there are all kinds of black folks. And instead of us all being subscribed to the stereotypes and myths of who we are, mm -hmm. I want for there to be more opportunity for us to showcase all of who we are. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that when it comes to even the concept of fertility, not all of us want to have babies. Like there's, there's, even that, the concept that we just want to have 10 kids, we want to have, like, that's a stereotype that we're trying to break, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's so exhausting mm -hmm. when you think about all of the different things that you have to actively fight to not look like, not be like, not, 
you know, instead of just being yourself, instead of just being able to have your experience of life Mm -hmm. and let it not be dictated by how everyone else has already decided that you are. They've already decided who you are and what you want and all of those things. It's it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, It's so exhausting and it ekes into every little bit of your life. Like, you know, when it comes to, you know, you're going to work and then nine times out of 10 for a lot of us, we're the only black person there. And so you're dealing with, you know, you're, you're dealing with your fertility stuff. You're going to the doctors, you're going to the clinics, you're dealing with whatever ailments you are, you're taking your, um, you know, treatments and everything like that. You might be the only black person at that clinic. Mm -hmm. So you're educating them about how to treat you. Then you go to work after that. Now you're educating them about how to treat you, how to talk to you, and you're trying not to be, you know, you can't show how tired, how angry, how frustrated mm-hmm. you are. Yes, because then you'll, you'll be like that mad black woman. Now you're the mad black woman. Yes. So yes. then you're taking it all on, and yep. now you have the black superwoman. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and on top of all of that, you're just trying to achieve what you feel your body should naturally do. Mm-hmm. And the psychological effect of feeling like not only do I have to justify and explain my way through my entire existence on this planet, but the very base thing that I thought about myself, I can't even see them as true because my body won't work the way it's supposed to. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And when you deal with all of that, your mental health now takes a hit. And that's why right now with the broken brown egg, I really try to emphasize all of this, that this is more than, this is bigger than babies. Yes. Oh, this Lord, yes. everything yes. that we're dealing with all day long, plus the baby conversation. It, like it's exactly. so much bigger. And to go back to that too and talk about, you know, seeking out treatment and when you seek out treatment and you're telling somebody, these are the issues that I'm having and this is the stuff that I'm dealing with and these are the problems that I'm experiencing for somebody to say, well, no, that's not the issue. No, no, your, your problem isn't that. Your problem is this. No, these are the problems that I'm having. These are the concerns. Well, no, 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 that's not your problem. Your pro-. And it's just like, you know, my cousin before, um, the one I gave a kidney to, before he had passed away, I remember him vividly telling me um, with all of the medical issues that he was having, he was like, you know, I had to learn to be my biggest advocate because every time I would go to the doctors, regardless of whatever doctor that I was seeing, and I would tell them, these are the problems, they, it was like they were trying to put in my mind, like, no, 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 that's not your problem. Your problem is really this over here. And he's just like, no, how are you going to tell me (laughs) what I'm feeling and what I'm experiencing? And I'm trying to tell you so that you can, but because it's not this textbook that you, you read in your, in your medical review or your medical books, then, then it doesn't exist. And it's just like, that's not necessarily the truth. When I first told my doctor that I thought I had PCOS. Um, first of all, I had gone to brunch with a reproductive endocrinologist who had found my site. Him and his wife were visiting Chicago and they took me to brunch to learn about the broken brown egg. And while we were there and I was just telling him how difficult it had been to try to get a doctor 
who could help me with my abnormal and irregular periods. And he was saying, have you looked into PCOS? And I hadn't heard of it before. Um, and he was like, yeah, there are indicators that you can look at in terms of your hair, in terms of your skin. Um, and then also with things like your abnormal periods, all that kind of stuff that make it seem to me that you may have PCOS, you should tell your doctors to look into that. And I thought, oh, wow, an answer. We've mm. been somewhere. Went to the doctor and I researched it a little bit on my own. Again, librarian. I actually looked it up and I was like, oh, these things do kind of mirror this thyroid issue that people keep telling me I have. And it does say that these are additional symptoms. And so I went to my doctor and I told her I thought I had PCOS and she laughed and she was like, um, <laughs> you know, everybody is on Google these days and everybody thinks they're a doctor. It's not PCOS. You don't have any cysts. So that is not what it is. Um, she actually told me there's nothing gynecologically wrong with you. There's nothing. We've just got to get your weight under control and we've got to figure out how to manage your thyroid. And then we're going to see what's going on. And it was just so dismissive. Mm. But the audacity to tell me <laughs> mm -hmm. that what I thought about my own body was not only untrue, but preposterous is just when I think about it now, now that I know about being a, my own advocate and being a patient advocate, I'm, I'm almost shocked that I didn't say anything back. What I did do was I changed doctors after that. Mm -hmm. um, and the next doctor, when I, I told her the same thing, she was like, let's look into it. If that's what you think. Then I think that we should look into it. And that's how I knew this is the doctor I should be with. Mm -hmm. But that is something that we as black people also struggle with. Mm -hmm. When the doctor tells us something, we kind of are like, Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Well, he was a fool. Mm -hmm. He he knows, and we leave it at that. You don't want to question anything. Mm -hmm. you don't want to question because in 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 many cases, especially with our older black men and women, mm -hmm. they didn't want to be there in the first place because mm -mm. they don't trust them. Mm -mm. <laughs> no, no. I had an older gentleman in the library just last week who was telling me how. He wasn't feeling well, but he didn't feel like going to no doctors because he don't trust them. He was like, I don't trust them with this COVID. They're mm -hmm. not going to tell us the truth. Mm -hmm. He was going in it, and I thought somebody else he could be talking to that would be like, he's being so uh, superstitious and any other. But because I know the history of mm -hmm. the night doctor mm -hmm. and the history of J. Marion Sams and the history of our fear of the medical industry not only exploiting us, Hmm. but misdiagnosing or using us, I totally understood where he was coming from. Mm -hmm. And I understood that he may very well not go to a doctor because he doesn't trust them. He doesn't trust they're going to tell him the truth. He doesn't trust that they're not going to give him something that will actually make it worse. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's what he said. He said, if I go in for this, I'm going to come out with two other things. Mm -hmm. And this was just a black man just talking to me while I was at work. And he was just expressing himself about his feelings about the medical industry. But not only do they not always believe us, but there have been studies that they, many of them were taught that we have a higher threshold of pain. Pain, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, we can handle more. And that if we are, you know, saying that it's a, it's a 10, it's really probably a five, mm -hmm. you know. And it's, when you think about those things and you think about things like the, the, 
the maternal mortality rate. Hmm. That is out of control. Yeah. It breaks your heart because you think about what these women may have done or said and that may have been ignored. Yeah. I know I tried to be just coming from the fertility arena. I tried to make sure I was informed and a good patient advocate, even as a pregnant person. And I studied all of these things. I studied and watched documentaries. I read as much as I could. And when they decided they were going to induce for us to give birth to Judah, one of the medications I I looked at and I saw that there was a black woman who had passed away, that her family was fighting against the uh, pharmaceutical company because they felt like it was not an appropriate medication and that it led to them losing the mother of this baby. And so when I listed that in my birth plan and I got to the hospital and I told the nurse, this is a medication that I don't feel comfortable with because of this. And this is what I read. And this is what I saw. Even she was like, well, that's a very rare case. This is what this is. And basically was like, but this is what we're going to (laughs) do. Um, and I remember feeling like this is what is happening to our women that are going into these doctor's offices or even right up to surgeries, mm-hmm. and they're saying, I am an informed patient. Mm-hmm. And they're being told, yeah, well, you're not informed enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe you. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't support you. I'm not going to educate you. Even if, even if, you know, they discovered that something that we've researched is not necessarily factual, there is a way to educate a patient and make them feel like you heard them, you trust them, and that you want to support support them mm-hmm. without making them feel dismissed. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening is so many of our Black women are being dismissed, mm-hmm. and it is leading to something that cannot be taken back. Mm-hmm. It's leading to something that cannot be fixed. Um, And when we talk about things like fertility, because there are so many things that you have to take or do, it is an injustice to us if we're not being educated properly about it. Mm -hmm. And if there are not doctors who are educated properly about the things that a Black person may not ask. Mm-hmm. You know, this concept that we're all supposed to be comfortable going to the doctor, that has to be challenged. We need compassionate healthcare providers who understand this particular race of people has a valid mistrust of this industry. Hmm. I need to do my part as a medical professional to educate them, to make them feel safe to help them to trust me, to show that I am not going to do what their predecessors may have done, that my predecessors may have done. I need to make sure that they are understanding every option available to them, every treatment that I'm prescribing and why. But that's not what's happening in many cases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's not what's happening in many cases. And then when you try to look for a doctor who's black, you come up empty. Yeah. Or they're so busy, they don't have any more spots because everybody is trying to find someone who they feel like, well, I can trust them because they look like me. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. If, if more of the doctors who don't look like us will at least make an effort to make sure that they're saying, hey, I understand you have a mistrust of this community and I apologize for it, 
but here's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. We have a much more balanced system and more educated patients who are able to advocate for themselves mm-hmm. and, and probably change a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have to start there. We first have to get comfortable. <laughs> you know, like we've been saying, we first have to get comfortable with having that conversation. Wow, some heavy stuff, huh? Join us next week as we complete part two of the conversation with Regina Townsend from The Broken Brown Egg. Thank you for joining us in the Fertility Cafe. Whether you're an intended parent, a woman considering egg donation, thinking of becoming a surrogate yourself, or a friend or family member of someone dealing with infertility, we're here to help. Visit our website, thefertilitycafe.com, for resources on fertility, alternative family building, and making this journey your own.